It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for the download. Remember, you can subscribe. Just go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Click the big subscribe button. That's right there. And then the podcast comes directly to your smartphone or your tablet. You don't even have to do anything. It just shows up there. Um, And uh, that's where you can also go to become patrons of the program, like uh, Mary did and Eric and David and Peggy, Tavis, Kristen, Beth and Al and Kim, Eugene, Brian, they all are patrons of the program. Couldn't do the show without you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, they get access to exclusive content and, of course, the world-famous bumper stickers. Okay, maybe not world-famous, maybe just nationally famous. Uh, yeah, about that. Uh, we're going to talk with a guy named Paul Rosenzweig in a minute. First, I want to tell you about Growers Hemp, the newest sponsor of the show. These are North Carolina farmers. Literally, they are farmers, and they created this company because they were growing hemp, and then they were seeing a lot of the uh, these actors, I shall call them, uh, in the industry that sort of parachuted into North Carolina to try to uh, corner the markets and such in the hemp industry. And a lot of those companies were fly by night. They took off and these farmers were like, you know what? Why don't we do this? We know what we're doing. We know how to raise these crops. And uh, why don't we create sort of a co-op model? And this way farmers benefit and people who use the products benefit. I use Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract Every single night before I go to bed, when I remember, which I'm usually very good at, I'm very good at remembering. Every now and again, I'll forget, and I can totally tell when I forget because I don't sleep as well. I don't. I don't sleep as deeply. When I take the drops, these CBD drops, when I go to bed, uh, I sleep more deeply than I ever have before in my life. I've always been the kind of person that wakes up repeatedly throughout the night. I usually uh, would take a long time to fall asleep. I couldn't fall asleep right away. Since I've been taking the CBD drops, I don't have those problems. So go to growershemp.com, use the promo code PETE, and you'll get 20% off uh, your purchase. And uh, see what CBD oil can do for you. What are you looking for? A better quality of life? A balanced state of mind? A positive mental outlook? Deeper sleep? Lower tension? Add the natural alternative Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract to your daily routine. They control the whole process, Growers Hemp does, from the seed all the way to the shelf, which means better quality for you and lower prices. Here's the disclaimer. Got to read it. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and the efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Growershemp.com. Again, the promo code PETE. Get 20% off from North Carolina farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. Joining me now is Paul Rosenzweig. He is uh, the resident senior fellow for cybersecurity and emerging threats at the R Street Institute. He also teaches at George Washington University School of Law, and he manages a cybersecurity consulting company called Red Branch Consulting. And welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So uh, first of all, let's kind of go over uh, your thoughts just at a at a high level of uh, the uh, of what you saw happen at the Capitol. And is that was this was this completely surprising or unsurprising to you? Well, I think the most surprising piece of it was the failure of governmental authority to be responsive. It was not surprising that there was a large meeting of of President Trump supporters in Washington, nor should it have been surprising to anybody that there was the possibility and thus the reality of violence in the Capitol. They had been saying quite as much on social media for many weeks before. Uh, What was very surprising was the degree to which the U.S. Capitol Police, the Senate and House Sergeant-at-Arms, appear to have been unprepared for the level and degree of violence and appear to have not had in place adequate 
backup response plans of the sort that would have allowed them to uh, change their activity as soon as they realized that the threat was larger than they had anticipated it would be. Why do you think that is? Do you have any theories or ideas at this point? Well, I, I think it's going to be a, a, a combination of a whole host of factors, right? Uh, so I'm not one who's going to cast stones and say that they ought to have gotten it right, because all of these are predictive judgments that you have to make. Here are some of the things that probably went into play. Uh, first, uh, the U.S. government had been uh, critiqued quite strongly for being overly aggressive in its response to the Black Lives Matters uh, protests in the summer of last year in Washington, D.C. The use of military troops, for example, to clear Lafayette Square was wrong. Everybody knew it was wrong. And so the military was uh, gun shy mm -hmm. and uh, wanted to step back from that. And so did all the other governmental authorities. They didn't want to look uh, like they were uh, being overly aggressive a second time. Second, they just had a pro-Trump rally in Washington in December, which had a very a modest, real but modest amount of violence to it. But that violence was more in the nature of uh, breaking windows in commercial establishments of the sort that is, uh, well, I wouldn't say common, but wasn't a threat to the seat of democracy. Uh, third, uh, there is a natural reluctance in the U.S. Capitol Police in particular to be aggressive in stopping demonstrations because it is the very venue that we expect people to have and come and exercise their First Amendment rights. Uh, I live on Capitol Hill part of the year, and there are protests there Every other week, practically, yeah. <laughs> people march on it peacefully. Um, you know, the uh, the uh, pro-life movement has been having an annual rally on the steps of the uh, Capitol and Supreme Court uh, for the last 30, 40 years without any real violence. So uh, the Capitol Police have had to develop procedures that allow people to express their First Amendment views uh, effectively. And they don't want to be accused of suppressing legitimate protests, and, and rightly so. Uh, uh, fourth, and, and finally, uh, had they overly militarized this particular day, I think they thought it would look really bad, right? It wound up looking a lot worse, but, you know, the specter that they were trying to think against was, you know, Armed military officers protecting Congress as it counts the electoral votes. Uh, it's going to look worse now on Inauguration Day, and they made a bad choice. But I think overall, there was a, 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 a hope and expectation that it wouldn't get as violent as it did, that it would be more of a peaceful protest, and uh, that they could respond to it as they normally would to most other protests. Tragically, uh, the Capitol Police were wrong. Um, equally tragically, I think uh, some of the impetus for, for that was, was the president's own actions. Uh, as, as Kevin McCarthy said on the floor, he bears some responsibility for this. So uh, altogether, it became a perfect storm of failure. Which I noticed in your bio that you also worked previously for the Department of Homeland Security. And I remember after 9-11, one of the phrases that I heard was, you know, a, a sort of a failure to imagine this kind of a thing occurring. Is that is that a similar kind of assessment? I think it's exactly the same assessment um, was that there was a nobody could imagine planes flying into buildings. And I don't think we ever really had a conception of ourselves as a country where uh, people would try and storm the Capitol. Um, I also think there's another phrase in that report that has also been echoing in my mind lately, which was uh, the lights were blinking red, mm. that, the, that there were warning signs about the impending 9-11 attacks that people just didn't process. And I think here, too, the lights of a violent 
uh, insurrectionism, violent nationalism have been blinking red for several years. And we just haven't seen them in quite the same way that we ought to have. It's going to be very interesting to see what lessons we learn from this. Speaking of lessons learned, have you ever had a bad real estate agent? Lesson learned. Find a good realtor, buying or selling. And you're in luck because I have one uh, for you. That is Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. They will get your house sold quickly and for more money. It's what they do. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state. She is the only agent that I would use to sell my house. Now, I don't have a house yet, but I am using her to buy a house. See? So, like... We trust her when we, uh, we're using her to buy our house. We did not know questions to ask. We're doing a build to suit, and uh, it's in a development where you get to make some choices here and there on certain aspects of the build and the design, but uh, we didn't know everything to ask the builder. And so having Rowena there to highlight things and talk to the builder and get answers to questions was super helpful. Put her and her team to work for you. Also, she's the official Homes for Heroes real estate agent uh, in Asheville. This is the national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from realtor commissions. This goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military, veterans, active duty, and retirees. She's given back about $800,000 so far to folks in those professions. So give her a call at 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Give her a call and then start packing. I am speaking with Paul Rosenzweig. He is the resident senior fellow for cybersecurity and emerging threats at the R Street Institute. He teaches at George Washington University School of Law. He also manages a cybersecurity firm called Red Branch Consulting. Over the past few years, I have had many conversations with people who believe in this QAnon conspiracy. Do you do you, are you aware of this? I guess I should ask now. If, I guess you probably are sure. aware of it, at least now. Sure. <laughs> but um, And sure. I never really thought it was more than just sort of, you know, people trying to, much like 9-11 truthers, people trying to make some order or sense out of, uh, out of something because it makes them feel better. They derive some level of comfort from it. But uh, now looking at what occurred... I'm kind of wondering, were there warning signs about the QAnon folks that that there was this uh, there there was an element of violence or people that were in there that were looking to do so? Because as I understand it, the whole purpose of the siege was to uh, round up lawmakers and then mass arrests were going to happen. They really believe that and they still believe that this is going to happen. Do you have any insight on QAnon in in their relationship to what we saw? Well, I think QAnon, both as a specific group and as a broader symbol for what is happening in America, had a significant uh, impact on the events that we've just seen. There is always been a strain in America that is sort of, you know, fabulous and believes in things that aren't really so. Um, Somehow, the <clears throat> QAnon cons- conspiracies have um, metastasized in ways that they occupy people's minds uh, that I don't think we understand very well. Mm. I was reading just today about a, a woman uh, named Pilau from uh, Cleveland, 49 years old, a an occupational therapist who teaches special needs children. Um, So seemingly a grounded human being with a job, probably a pension, that sort of thing. And she was photographed sitting in Vice President Pence's chair in the Senate, holding a sign referring to the myth that there is a pedophilia ring in a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., which has been you know, widely debunked in his, uh, you know, but has made the grounds in QAnon. Yeah. Uh, she had just quit her job or was just going to quit her job to pursue this pedophilia. And now she's facing two years in jail for illegal entry into the Capitol. And I don't think we understand the mechanisms by which someone like her gets radicalized by beliefs in things that really aren't real. Yeah. Yeah. And and until we do that, I don't know how we recover. 
Yeah, there's a, and I was just kind of uh, reading through some of, uh, you know, Eric Hoffer and, uh, you know, his, uh, the true believer mass movements and people who, he, and, and a point he makes is, you know, people are drawn to these math, mass movements because they're bored, right? A society that has a lot of boredom. <laughs> and I, and the first thing I thought was lockdowns, COVID, you know, everybody's at home, lots of time on their hands and QAnon gives them all of these kind of like riddles to figure out. And then they seem like, they're on the inside. They've got the they've got the real information. Um, I don't know how that like you you called it metastasized. I don't know how that that happened. And uh, because, like I said, until I saw this I, and, and I saw the people that were involved in their signs. Um, yeah, I thought it was just like any other conspiracy theory that was out there. and It's kind of silly, but not worth taking seriously as a threat. Um, and so. Uh, how do you now get at that? I saw Twitter started banning a whole bunch of QAnon people from a cybersecurity aspect. Um, how do you like how how do you possibly monitor all of the internet for that kind of element? You don't. You mm. can't. Um, I mean, they're 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 upping their game and being much more aggressive about it now, but they can't. Uh, they can't silence it. I think one of the. Uh, more difficult and challenging questions we're going to have to deal with is how to uh, combat it in the public space. How, I mean, you know, to put it in, in impolite terms, Ben, and how to deprogram people, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you're, you've suggested they're bored and they like puzzles. I mean, my wife does jigsaw puzzles. Should we just mail jigsaw puzzles to all the two non-believers? Well, it's, hey, that's a, that's an actionable step. The first I've heard. So maybe that that could be it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm at a loss as well. And I, I don't think and I don't know how big of an element that was. And I'm, again, I'm just going by reports and what I've seen in photographs and videos. Um, does it, well, and here, this is now some new information that's coming out. I know there's a lot of people on the right that want to believe that this was all Antifa and Black Lives Matter and leftists that were, uh, that were agitating this. Now there are, there have been a couple of arrests. Did that surprise you to find some of those types of people in the mix? No, but they're, they're not, they're going to prove to be virtual non-existent. I mean, this, this was, I mean, as, 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 Majority leader, minority leader Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, said this was not Antifa. Right. This was uh, Trump supporters. They own it, rightly or wrongly, and they're going to have to figure out what they mean by it. To that extent, what about the members of Congress? I know there is a, uh, there are rumors, and I don't have any information to prove this at this point, that some of them gave tours the day before, and that uh, they're they're being accused of giving. Uh, basically, you know, the, the advance notice or giving people the layout of the building and where to go and all of this. Um, I, and I mean, that would be truly disturbing in my mind. Um, but short of that kind of activity, should members of Congress face some sort of punishment? I'm thinking, you know, the Republicans that signed, uh, you know, signed on to the, the protests of the certification of the election. Let, let's put aside the, the question of whether or not any individual representative actively assisted yeah. in the in the insurrection um, if any of them did then then they're they bear criminal responsibility they should be expelled you know that's easy um, I think that those representatives and senators who continue to tell their constituents lies about the prevalence of election fraud bear responsibility for what happened. Um, that doesn't mean that they're criminal. Doesn't mean that they incited the, this directly. Um, and I'm not sure. And I don't even think it means that they should be expelled. But if uh, uh, a resolution were to be introduced today to censure any representative who maintained the false fiction that the election had been stolen, I'd vote for that um, as a historical mark that they were A, wrong, and B, that their error had real adverse consequences that five people now, maybe six I think I heard, are dead because of this, uh, that 
we will be a decade cleaning up the damage to America's reputation internationally, if not longer. This is real. And they deserve to be called out and remembered in history for their failure. My opinion. Right. And of course. And so and this is uh, I just want to be clear. This is anybody who signed on to the to the objections initially or people who continue now? Uh, Well, certainly who continue now. Sure. I mean, it it, it, look, it's a continuum of good faith uh, and increasingly, you know, if you if you still think that the that if you're still saying today that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, shame on you. Right. To play devil's advocate, I will tell you that the response that uh, you'll get from quarters in the Republican uh, Party among Trump supporters will be, well, what about all of the Democrats that have been calling Trump's election illegitimate for the last four years? And what about their language that has incited violence? And, uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris telling people to bail out. And I think she donated right to get some of these protesters out of jail over the summer. Like, is there a double standard? Well, no, I, I don't think so. None of those people attacked the Capitol, right, and and called into question the election of the president of the United States. None of the Republican uh, Democratic candidates for president have denied the legitimacy of of the president. President Obama didn't like it, but he welcomed Donald Trump to the to the to the White House, you know, went to his inauguration. So that's one of those false equivalencies that is just not the same thing. Um, I don't think. Is it is it different because it's the Capitol versus other property that was destroyed and other people that were harmed? Well, the Capitol, and, and, but more the sanctity of the election system, right? Protests, we have had protests in the United States, including violent protests for 200 years. Mm-hmm. We've never had an assault on the U.S. Capitol, and we've never had 60% of one party say that they will uh, the elected representatives of one party say they won't accept the results of the election vote to decertify the clear result of an election that their party lost by seven million votes right that just has never happened before and anybody who can't see the difference between that uh and what has gone in the past you know is in the same QAnon group as we were just discussing They live in a different reality from you and I, and I don't know how to talk to them. More with Paul Rosenzweig in a minute. First, if uh, you don't know how to talk to your spouse about uh, how firm the mattress should be or why they are totally wrong to not want the head of the bed raised up or the foot of the bed raised up like you want, I have a way to solve uh, this issue and uh, maybe save your marriage while saving you a bunch of money. It's Mattress Man. The Split King Mattress Blowout going on right now at Mattress Man. You can pick up free adjustable bases with the purchase of select mattresses. This will allow you to raise the head, raise the foot of the bed. But the Split King, they're two pieces of the King mattress. So you can customize your bed one side soft, one side firm, one side feet up, one side head up. The possibilities here. Well, they're not really endless. I mean, there's probably a set permutation, but uh, it's pretty darn near close to endless. So go on into Mattress Man. They've got four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide, by the way. So you can go to their website, mattressmanstores.com. Check out the inventory there. If you go to their stores locally, let their sleep consultants help you pick the right mattress for you. They go through six weeks of intensive training uh, to learn uh, all about you know sleep positions and how they are affected by different types of mattresses, how the mattresses are built, uh, what they're designed to do, and what they're designed not to do. Not all mattresses are equal. Like, for example, the Biltmore Collection by Restonic. These are the mattresses that are at the hotel and the inn at the Biltmore Estate here. And uh, so they are really, really nice, and they're really comfortable, as you might imagine a Biltmore Collection might be. Uh, they are sold exclusively by Mattress Man, five-star local delivery service, and a 120-day comfort guarantee. So experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. I am speaking with Paul Rosenzweig. He is the resident senior fellow for cybersecurity and emerging threats at the R Street Institute. He also teaches at George Washington University School of Law, and he manages a cybersecurity firm called Red Branch Consulting. Now, is there uh, is there a way? I know Jonathan Turley has suggested a federal commission to look at the um, 
the 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 election and what what occurred um do you would that would that be something you think could i don't know yield some benefit well i think there's ample room to improve the electoral process and i sure wouldn't uh uh disapprove of that but i'm sure because i know jonathan and he, he he's 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 um his bias is showing that he would not approve of it if we said that the commission should also examine the extent to which uh, Republicans uh, incited the violence that resulted. He only wants to look at whether or not uh, black people in in some states voted too much. He wouldn't want to look, for example, at Texas. I, I know because he's written this or or any of the other states that changed their law, only the states that Biden won. If we want to, if we have a serious conversation about it, that would be great. But uh, I don't take much of what Jonathan says seriously anymore. So, uh, and yes, you can quote me on that. All right, yeah, I was going to say, I just want to be clear, like I am recording. Um, so, yeah. so you're, no, I, I, you I, think I, he's born? This is driven from racial animus in his part? Not his part, particularly, but I think that it is no, it is no. Um, to take a simple example, it is no coincidence that in Michigan, the only counties that the Republican Party challenged the voting process in were the Detroit part, D- Detroit counties. In Pennsylvania, the challenges are in Philadelphia. It is ex- almost it is to a large degree, and in Georgia, it's about Atlanta, Fulton County. To a large degree, it's driven by a desire to suppress Democratic votes, and in many instances, Black Democratic votes. I don't know if you I mean, I read his piece the other day and I I, I covered it on the show and I'm not sure. Uh, I think he's calling for a commission just to examine whether there were irregularities as a way basically to say, no, it was above board. It was this was fine because like North Carolina, where I am, we had lawsuits against our state uh, from Democrats as well. And they upended they went around our state law, our state legislature to rewrite election law and. Uh, like that's that that opened up this this Pandora's box, I think, that now all of a sudden nobody trusts the process because of the lawsuits that were then entered into uh, by, you know, the Board of Elections in, in, in what appeared to be a partisan fashion and a collusive agreement. And it 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 rubbed a lot of people the wrong way while we were voting. And I think that was what Turley was trying to get at. Yeah, I, I, I think you're giving Jonathan far too much credit. Okay, well, you know him. I, like, I just know his his writings and stuff. So that's, uh, and you know, uh, you would know, I guess, more than I. But uh, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, look, if you want to, we can. The the di- I mean, if you really want to, the difference between that was that those were lawsuits that the Republicans could have participated in, all of which were decided well before North Carolina, um, uh. You know, went to the North Carolinians went to the polls in November, right? The only people who are trying to overturn the results after the rules were set are the Republicans. You well, know, well, yeah, you but- can make an argument that we shouldn't let courts, you know, change the rules. That it should be the legislature only. Yeah. Um, and that's a substantive argument that I'm happy to have a, a, a real talk about. But that's not the same thing as what the, you know, I mean, just today uh american thinker had to withdraw everything it's ever written about dominion voting machines because all of it's wrong and they were under threat of defamation suits really jonathan wants to have an electoral a commission examine something that 60 courts have already examined and rejected 61 actually president trump is one in sixty-one. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've heard the the counter to that is that that a lot of that was dismissed. You know, no, no standing, uh, too late. Uh, you know, that so a lot of it wasn't on the merits. Most, most of that, most of that is untrue. Hmm. Uh, you know, there were decisions on the merits in every one of the states. There were a lot. The the one that was dismissed on standing was like Texas trying to challenge get the Supreme yeah. Court throw out somebody some other state's law right as if texas has any interest in how pennsylvania votes all right that's paul rosenzweig the resident senior fellow for Cybersecurity and emerging threats at the r street institute also a, a teacher at george washington university school of law and uh, he manages a cybersecurity firm called red branch consulting um donald trump in his last 
uh, bit of time in the White House, uh, issued a raft of 11th hour pardons and commutations. Uh, This is according to the story over at CNN by Pamela Brown, Kevin Liptak and Caitlin Collins. And they say that the list of pardons and commutations included his one-time political strategist, a former top fundraiser, and two well-known rappers, but not himself or his family. The batch of 73 pardons, which is amazing because I was told uh, by... Uh, people with sources and who, you know, are paid to know these sorts of things that Donald Trump was going to be pardoning himself and his family, but he apparently did not do so. Um, The batch of 73 pardons and 70 commutations issued in the final hours of his presidency was expected and is in keeping with a longstanding presidential tradition of exercising clemency powers at the last minute. I would just like to point out here, I am not a fan of this. I am not a fan of this. If you want to do pardons uh, and you want to do clemency and commutations and all that, uh, I I don't necessarily object to the concept, but I would prefer it to be done during your term, not on your way out the door when there is no longer any political risk for you to do so, because you end up getting precisely what we have gotten over the years, which is the pardoning of terrorists, the pardoning of political allies, of political donors, and that's who's, uh, sorry, not terrorists, but people who are donors that are in this list. I do find it interesting that a lot of people on the left are going to get completely exercised about the the list of political donors while ignoring how their guys uh, commuted sentences and pardoned literal domestic terrorists, literally. Um, The vast majority of the pardons on the list were doled out to individuals whose cases have been championed by criminal justice reform advocates, including people serving lengthy sentences for low-level offenses. Um, So this is interesting as well. I give credit to CNN for identifying this. Most of these pardons and commutations went to people that the left has been saying, you know, these people who are for criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, and Trump has again delivered for those advocates, for those activists, and he will not get credit for that, by the way. Several controversial names do appear, including Steve Bannon, who has pleaded not guilty to charges he defrauded donors in a We Build the Wall online fundraising campaign. Other names included Elliot Broidy, a former top fundraiser for Trump's campaign who pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy. Um... The rapper Lil Wayne received a pardon as well after pleading guilty to a gun possession charge in Miami. And another rapper, Kodak Black, received a commutation after he pleaded guilty to a weapons charge. Trump also offered clemency to Paul Erickson, the conservative political operative and ex-boyfriend of the alleged Russian spy Maria Butina, who pleaded guilty to wire fraud and money laundering charges. And closer to home... Robin Hayes, described by CNN as a North Carolina political donor convicted of trying to bribe officials. <laughs> now, far be it for me to suggest that CNN doesn't know who Robin Hayes actually is. <laughs> uh, former congressman, longtime congressman. He was the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party. He was caught in an undercover sting by the Republican uh, insurance commissioner, Mike Causey, who recorded it uh, for the uh, for the feds. Right. They busted him trying to extract concessions out of the insurance commission uh, or the the Department of Insurance uh, in exchange for donations from this guy, Greg Lindbergh, who, by the way, did not get any kind of clemency. Um, who else? Let's see. Former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, Democrat, convicted of federal charges, including racketeering, extortion and the filing of false tax returns, as well as William Walters, a professional sports gambler convicted of insider trading. Aviam Sela, an Israeli Air Force officer who the U.S. accused of being a spy. Bob Zangrio, the Miami developer and venture capitalist charged in the Varsity Blues College admissions scandal. He also got a pardon. None of the other parents caught up in that probe were pardoned, however. So there's 140 plus people. I think that this just does incredible damage to the credibility of institutions, the faith in our institutions. I always have. And the the longer the list, the worse it is, generally speaking. 
I, I again, this is not what the criminal justice system is supposed to be about. If people go to, you know, people commit a crime, they are then convicted of the crime. They are then sentenced for that crime. I don't think that their political connections should win them the absolution that they were sentenced to. I, I don't I don't think that that's appropriate because you got tons of people, millions of people, really, that never get that benefit. And while, yes, it is of note that uh, that he pardoned and commuted sentences for people that were, I think, you know, probably over sentenced in a lot of these cases. I think that's appropriate to look at those. But I don't like it happening on the way out the door. Also, once again, why wouldn't you do this sort of thing before the election? Some of these political instincts are just anyway, (laughs) it's over now. But uh, also, by the way, as uh, President Trump left office, uh, he rescinded his moratorium on people from his administration going to work for lobbyists, going right to work there. Now, uh, and, and look, I don't like this either. I, the libertarian in me says you shouldn't be able to tell people where they can and, and cannot go to work. Uh, I do understand, though, that there is the inherent corruption that uh, that is when you have a revolving door between government and these lobbying firms. So I recognize why these moratoriums exist. And so, on. you know, to that degree, I am sympathetic to the idea. I do like I understand what they're going for. I also understand why Trump would rescind it. I do. And it's not just because, you know, oh, see that he's a, you know, he he became the swamp. I think there's a recognition here as well that his people are being blacklisted. So why would you prevent them from trying to get employment in really the only way they could now? Because the uh, all of these institutions of the left that you know aka government they are now blacklisting anybody who did any work for Donald Trump you've got private entities that are blacklisting uh, all of the people that did any kind of work for Donald Trump they are they're organizing lists of these people so yeah i i i see it as a way that he can try to help these people that helped him but i don't know that to be true I don't know. This has always been my problem is that I can see a lot of these different angles and people want me to be like, you need to you know, come down. Yes or no. Black or white. I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see the different sides here. <laughs> this is why I think on the one hand, I would be a great juror in a trial. And on the other hand, I would be a terrible juror <laughs> in a trial. <laughs> uh, see, know thyself. Here's what I also know is that when I need a tool for any kind of a job around the house that I'm fixing to buy, uh, I am going to go to General Equipment Rental. They're in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Now, they've been there for a very long time. Uh, they're family owned and operated for three generations General Equipment Rental. They're actually your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So, yeah, when Christy and I downsized uh, several years ago, sold our house, we gave away so much uh, equipment, uh, power tools and all that stuff because we were trying to move out. We couldn't take it to this tiny apartment, so we sold a lot of stuff, gave away even more. And now I'm going to have to rebuild my tool shed. And so (laughs) I will be heading to General Equipment Rental to pick up a whole bunch of uh, power equipment uh, for the yard work. And I'm like, I'm really looking forward to this. I know it means I'm getting old, but like, uh, I'm really looking forward to it because when I bought my first round of yard equipment, it was probably 20 years ago. And the stuff they've got nowadays is so awesome and so easy to use. And they've got everything, by the way, whether you're looking for gas-powered or electric-powered, you know, battery-powered, they've got uh, all options. So go to General Equipment Rental, uh, not just for these purchases, but if you if you got a specific project and it needs a specific tool, but you don't want to buy that tool forever, just rent it. It's such a better option. General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com in Weaverville, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. Now, what is the Senate going to look like with the split 50-50 Democrat-Republican makeup now? Well, Yuval Levin, writing at National Review, breaks this down. Uh, He says, once the two Democratic winners of Georgia's Senate runoff races are sworn in, uh, the two parties will each hold 50 seats in the Senate. And on the face of it, that means the Democrats are going to control the chamber because the Constitution gives the vice president the tie-breaking vote on the floor when the Senate is equally divided. But he says, as a practical matter, 
it may well mean something more like shared control of the Senate in some key respects, and exactly what that's going to look like is going to have to be worked out. And I know um, they've already decided on some of the committee assignments. They're going to split them evenly. Democrats can't really count on the incoming vice president, Kamala Harris, to be available for every procedural vote over the next two years, right? She can't be there every single day, can she? They can't form uh, the Senate schedule around her schedule either. Right. If they insist on treating a tied Senate as under their control, um, they would only increase the likelihood that Republicans who are not happy with this arrangement are going to look for opportunities to use their 50 votes to cause mischief. And there are going to be a lot of opportunities all the time because it's 50 50 to enable themselves to get anything done. Senate Democrats will almost certainly need to come to a power sharing agreement with Senate Republicans. Such an agreement would give the Democrats the edge. Their leader would be the majority leader. Their committee leaders would be the committee chairs, so on, so forth. But it's also uh, they also have to give Republicans a lot more power than the minority party normally has in the Senate. This is already, by the way, this has already been done. Right. So when you when news came a couple days ago that Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer were hammering out some sort of a power sharing agreement and, you know, it's going to be 50 50 committee assignments and people on the committees will be 50 50 and all of this. And a lot of people on the left were outraged. You know, how dare you cut a deal? This is unprecedented. And it's actually not. There was a 50 50 Senate. Do you remember when? I do. 2000. Yeah. After the 2000 election. It was a 50-50 split, and in the opening days of that Congress, Republican leader Trent Lott and Democratic leader Tom Daschle reached an arrangement that made Lott the majority leader, because Vice President Dick Cheney could break tie votes, and made the Republicans the chairman of all the committees. But it also gave the two parties an equal number of members on each committee and subcommittee, equal budgets, equal office space allocations, and equal access to congressional resources. So this was already done. And then, of course, remember the guy, what was his name? Jim Jeffords and Rush Limbaugh called him jumping Jim Jeffords. He he deregistered as a Republican. I think he registered as a as an independent. Right. Thereby giving Democrats control of the Senate. So, by the way, do you think people are still remembering that if they were in the Senate back then? They do. <laughs> do you think they might? Do you think they may uh, seize an opportunity to try to do something like that? The Republicans this time, the Senate has become much more contentious and partisan in the last two decades, Levin goes on to say, since that arrangement was reached. But it's not actually clear which way that fact cuts. It might mean that such an arrangement would be less likely to happen now, since it requires a cooperative agreement between the two party leaders. But it could also mean that an agreement is all the more necessary, since the minority party is more likely to cause mischief in the absence of formal power sharing. If Republicans wanted to do that, They could make the Senate really difficult to run in the regular course of things, and that would require the vice president to essentially become another senator and be left unable to do much else. So, like, think about the think about the angles here. Right. If you want to get Kamala Harris off of the fundraising trail, off of the campaign trail, then you just make these things 50 50 votes as much as possible. And you keep her in the Senate and you keep her voting with her party a hundred percent of the time blocking or breaking every single tie. Right. So there's that layer of political machinations that are involved enough. Not that Mitch McConnell listens to me, but if he were listening to me and he asked me for a piece of advice, I would submit. Don't say that your number one political goal of this term is to prevent President Biden from getting any of his uh, goals accomplished. I'm not saying don't have that as a goal. I'm just saying don't say that at a press conference, so then the left can quote you on that for the next four years. (laughs) Now, uh, I'm not so sure I agree with this assessment in its um, totality here, because uh, he says uh, that without some formal arrangement, the Democrats are going to find it very hard to run the Senate. And I'm not so sure. I think they are going to run as fast and as far towards their leftist base agenda as they can. I think they are going to reach for everything they feel like they can reach for and fall out be damned. I think they uh, they see 2022 in the Senate, at least, 
as uh, more advantageous for them to maintain their majority or pick up some or maintain their 50 seats and pick up a majority, I should say. Uh, So I don't think that there's a lot of um, there's not a lot of incentive right now for them to try to deal with Republicans right out of the gate. They're going to do as much as quickly as possible. That's my prediction. And, you know, I don't make a lot of predictions here. I just I would be very surprised. And look, I'll be happy to acknowledge if I'm wrong on this. But right now, so far, what I've seen with Joe Biden's list of, you know, immediate executive actions that he's taking, um, I, I, I'm not I'm not terribly optimistic. Um, I'm not. Now, if you're not terribly optimistic and you want to increase some of your emergency preparedness supplies, then go see my friend Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. Uh, Not only does he have emergency kits so you can customize your emergency kit, uh, you know, for whether, you know, whether you're going to use it for the base to build off a larger, you know, emergency supply or something, uh, or you're a hiker, you're a camper, you're a hunter, you should always have a medical kit. Tim, uh, Tim built me one, and I appreciate that. And now uh, I'm prepped. I'm prepared. If something happens, I've got a, 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 a med kit that I can just throw in the go bag and be done with it. I can take it. I did, actually. We went, my, my wife and I went on a hike a few weeks back, and I just threw it in my backpack. It was great. And people were like, why does he have a backpack? I'm like, it's a medical, I got medical supplies. If something happens to one of you idiots out here on the trail, <laughs> right, you're going to thank me. <laughs> He's also got Kevlar. These are Italian military Kevlar helmets. They just came in and very solid pieces of equipment at a great price. Ammo cans for storage. I'm going to get me some of these when I get my house as well. And gun accessories. He's got lots of accessories like slings, magazine pouches, other stuff for the guns. So head on over to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Uh, The shop is open Monday through Saturday on Main Street in downtown Clyde and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. The FBI is investigating evidence that a woman who entered the Capitol on January 6th stole a laptop or a hard drive from Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office and intended to sell it to the Russians. This is a story at Politico by Kyle Cheney. The bizarre claim, which the FBI emphasized remains under investigation only, was included in an affidavit describing the criminal case against Riley June Williams, a Pennsylvania woman who was seen in footage on the January 6th insurrection in an area of the Capitol near Pelosi's office. It's not clear if the FBI has been able to apprehend her. Um, I will point out there's a lot of, and you heard it there, the insurrection, a word that was never used when... Democrats were behaving as badly and worse as these Trump supporters did at the Capitol. Well, Pete, it's different because it's the Capitol. Well, you heard Rosenzweig say that. I don't agree, by the way. I don't think it's different. I think when you attack institutions of democracy, whether they be at the state level or the federal level, I consider them all to be insurrectionist activities. Um, look, the the left right now with like this, they the left with this fervent belief that of like a QAnon Capitol rioter themselves, they're now celebrating how they overthrew a literal dictator, Donald Trump. They, they are saying this, that they overthrew a literal dictator by voting him out in an election that the literal dictator allowed to occur. And they don't see anything wrong with this kind of language. This, when, you, when you control the language, you control the debate. They are looking forward now to the The glorious defender of democracy, Joe Biden, scrapping all of the executive orders that were written by the literal dictator Donald Trump in an act when Joe Biden does it that is not equally dictatorial, but rather it's a a signal to all of the world that Biden is a healer. You see, now is the time for healing. And Biden is the only person on earth who can do that healing by coming up behind America gently placing his hands on her shoulders, drawing her close to him as he deeply inhales the scent of her hair. See, it's time for you to unite behind the people that call you a fascist Nazi member of the KKK. It is time for us all to rally around those people that hate us so much. It's time to rally around the policies that we don't support and to come together as half of the nation tries to get us fired from jobs, removed from social media platforms, and deprogrammed 
from our political beliefs. See, this is how we heal together by us surrendering to them, the resistance, which, by the way, that was their self-adopted aggrandizing name, right? They did not. They literally adopted the name, the resistance, because they refused to recognize Donald Trump's uh, presidency. They called him an illegitimate president, you know, hashtag not my president. All of the things that the MAGA people are now saying about how, about Joe Biden. And by the way, people said about Barack Obama as well, which by the way, people said about George W. Bush as well. See, when you when you cover this stuff for long enough, you start seeing the same patterns over and over and over again. The 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 cult like uh, following that Obama had and people mocked him for it and mocked his followers. I used to call them Obamatons. And I remember some of the same people who later became the equivalent to Donald Trump of what they, they were right there with me. Like, oh, I can't believe that, you know, this cult of personality built up around Obama and they're now engaged in the exact same thing with Donald Trump and they don't see it. And by the way, the people who were, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid for Obama they mock and ridicule the people who drink the Trump Kool-Aid. And by the way, now those people who were drinking the Obama Kool-Aid, they're not drinking the Joe Biden Kool-Aid. They're, we're now being treated to stories about Kamala Harris's Converse sneakers. Have you seen these stories? <laughs> yeah, for real. It's crazy. Yeah, we've, yeah we're finally going to be able to get back to our national press corps focusing on stories that matter, you know, like how stylish and awesome Kamala Harris's pantsuits and Converse sneakers are, which I'm not sure how long she's been wearing the Converse sneakers. Um, but if like I would be curious to know, maybe I do have to sit down and read one of these ridiculous puff pieces on her just to find out, because I am aware of another female lawmaker who had aspirations for higher office than she held. And uh, a big deal was made about her sneakers as well. Do you remember who that was? What was her face in, in Texas, right? She ran uh, and she had this big floor speech that was billed as like a filibuster, which wasn't actually a filibuster because uh, she couldn't stop the legislature from moving forward. There was an allotted time for debate and she just uh, she just filled that time. But it was a long period of time. And so she stood there and she wore these pink tennis shoes. And oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. It's the tennis shoes. Can we put these at the Smithsonian? They were all in love with Wendy Davis, who, by the way, lost in her run for what was it, governor and then lost in her run for Congress. She got defeated by Chip Roy, I believe. So, um, yeah, there, there's something about footwear with the folks on the left. There's some sort of fetish going on there. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but uh, it's all about the shoe, the footwear. And oh, my gosh, look at her. She's one of us. She wears Converse sneakers. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so this is the, uh, the, the brave firefighters, the defenders of democracy. This is the way they're approaching the Biden presidency. <laughs> Meanwhile... Melania Trump never got a cover. <laughs> never. And not that I'm a huge fan of those types of cover shots and those stories and stuff, but like of all of the people, these fashion industry magazines should put on the cover. They put every other first lady on the cover, but they don't put Melania Trump on the cover, even though she's an actual supermodel, actual, you know, uh, fashionista comes from that world. I know it gets... The citing of the double standards at this point almost seems pointless. That's a wrap for the episode. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. And remember, subscribe, become a patron of the program. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Yeah.